Welcome to episode lucky number seven of Rock Talk on Drives. My name is Jim Finiak. And I'm Neil Corbett. All right, Neil, episode seven, big milestone for us here today. What do we have for the topic? Well, as I often say, I'm excited about today's topic and I'm ultra excited about today's topic, installation best practices for VFDs. Quite an expansive uh, discussion. Great guest we have today, Jim. Yeah, certainly introduce him here in a moment and definitely a, a big topic that I've been pulled into in a variety of different roles throughout my career here. So definitely something that impacts a lot of our installations that we see across the globe and some challenges that our customers face as they consider updates to their existing infrastructure, as well as expansions and other greenfield projects. Also just chasing down some of these ghosts that we sometimes might call them in their system with some of these electrical nuisances. So I think we know this topic is definitely a, a big one and we can go in a lot of different directions. So this will take place over multiple episodes here as we, we break this up and break it down. Exactly. You know, after uh, our listeners get through the podcast chocked full of great information, they might think to themselves, wow, that's a lot of, lot of stuff to remember. And you and I and, and our guest will continue to reinforce drives-in001, other documents that you can refer to and reference all of this great information we're about to share. And second, you might think, wow, there's a whole lot to remember and reference and read about. For those that are relatively new to applying drives, selecting drives, designing systems around VFDs, it may seem a little complicated at first. And my favorite analogy is Remember how complicated it felt like driving a car at first? A whole lot of things to remember. In the case of applying VFDs, it may feel like that up front. But believe me, when you apply more and more VFDs, this becomes a second nature. Yeah, I think the intention here is to make it a little bit more palatable, so to speak, and not overwhelm our, our listeners here with too much of the technical details, but really more of the best practices and the guidance and a little bit of the, the history behind where some of these challenges have come from. So today we have Dave Dahl here to read that manual of drives installation. No, I'm kidding there. But we do have Dave Dahl. I will let him introduce himself, but he is uh, definitely a, a legend here at Rockwell Automation. Well, thanks, Jim, for that remark. I appreciate it. And thank you, Neil, for inviting me to do this episode on drive installation practices. I'm looking forward to sharing what I know. If you don't know me, I've been working for Rockwell Automation for over 30 years in our low-voltage standard drives technical support group, where it's our job to answer questions and solve problems related to the installation, application, and use of our adjustable drives. And you know, it's not uncommon that some of the questions or issues that come up could have been avoided if better installation practices were followed. So in, in this episode, I'm going to share with you and highlight key installation practices so you can have a successful VFD startup and a continued operation. So what I do in these talks or do in these seminars, and I've been doing over 100 of them on drive installation practices, I divide it into two different parts. I divide it into a compatibility. I want the drive to be compatible with everything that's connected to it or associated with the drive system or drive operation for your business. And also, I want that drive to be dependable, meaning when you go hit the green button or the start button at the beginning of a shift, I want that drive to be working for you 
and I want that drive to last a long time. So if there is issues with compatibility or dependability, they're usually a direct result of a decision made in how to install a drive or a group of drives. So that's going to be the topics for today for drive installation practices. All right. That sounds good. And I I like the breaking up of compatibility and reliability here. So let's start with compatibility. I think oftentimes when we describe or make assumptions around our our installations that we see uh, in the wild here is that we assume almost this utopian state of a perfect installation, but we know oftentimes that's not the case. Can you maybe help us understand why that is? Really, why do we spend all this time on drive installation practices when we maybe don't need this same consideration for all electrical equipment that we put into our industrial facilities? Good question, Jim. And I get that often. And I've been struggling with that answer for as many years as I've been doing drive technical support. But I think I got to figure it out. We're going to spend maybe an hour, maybe longer on talking about AC drive installation practices where you really don't see this discussion on, say, a simple power supply that we put in a in a panel. We don't spend an hour on how to connect a power supply. And I think the key here is the difference between, uh, say, a, po- a power supply and a drive is a drive is connected to the utility power. So th- those uh, risers or telephone poles outside the factory, those wires are connected directly to a drive. So whatever is going on in your power distribution system, a drive will see it. And then also the drive output. If you think about the functionality of a drive, it takes a fixed AC input voltage and it changes it to a variable voltage on the output to allow you to run the motor at any speed you want to match the process or application. Well, that output of that drive, it's not a a sinusoidal voltage. It's a series of rectangular pulses that change from Well, for a 480 volt drive, it changes from zero to 650 volts DC in a matter of hundreds of nanoseconds, very rapidly, very rapid voltage rise time in a series of rectangular pulses. You've heard that term, pulse width modulation, right? Well, that's what it is. So what makes a drive unique is this wire cable between the drive and the motor with those series of high voltage pulse width modulated voltages, oh my gosh, it almost acts like a a transmission antenna, if you will. There could be a lot of electromagnetic emissions coming off of the output of the drive. So serious considerations to make the drive compatible is really important to prevent these electromagnetic emissions on the output of the drive coupled into sensitive equipment. So that's why I think a drive is unique compared to other Rockwell automation components. And again, today, a drive is connected to the rest of your enterprise through communication cables, through analog wires. And these small signal wires, communication or analog wires, are telling a drive to do something or they're receiving information from the drive. And you don't want the operation of the drive to interfere with that operation. So it's really important to follow some good installation guidelines to prevent any issues or, or interference with other pieces of electronic equipment that's associated with the operation. 
a typical phone call we will get in tech support is, you know, we installed this drive system, and now every time we run it, our communication slows down. We're trying to send the drive a new command to go a different speed, but it's taken forever to get there. Or we're trying to receive information from the drive and we don't get it. Or we get just a complete communication loss. Or a typical call would be, hey, every time we start the drive, a level sensor gives us wrong information or a flow sensor. So we got this interference of the drive with other pieces of electronic equipment. In regards to compatibility also, we sometimes will get a phone call where, you know what? We replaced a motor starter with an adjustable speed drive because of the features of the drive where we can change the speed of the motor. But since we installed the drive, we've replaced the motor a couple times. There might be a compatibility issue with that motor and that drive, and we'll cover that to make sure that when you install an adjustable speed drive, you got a motor that will work with it. It's interesting that this very device that we're perhaps recommending or that our our customers are putting into their system for productivity improvements could actually do the opposite without some of these considerations. Absolutely. And as electronics is changing and as drives are getting more performance out of them and as communication networks are speeding up, if you're old like me, you remember 300 baud. <laughs> you remember RS-232 networks. The signal levels were voltage levels. Now today with Ethernet and the internet, you're talking about millivolts and you're talking about transmission rates in all, up to one gigabaud. So the signal levels have changed considerably. Electronics has changed considerably in an industrial environment. So things are becoming a little more sensitive. So we really got to pay attention to how we install this stuff to make it compatible. So oftentimes we do get pulled into conversations with our our customers and they ask, well, why am I having a problem now? But I think you helped me to understand that it physics hasn't changed, but certainly the, the way that we use technology has, as a result, these considerations just become that much more critical. Am I right to assume physics hasn't changed? <laughs> physics has not changed. If I were to take an electronics course again, the basic theory of electricity would be the same. So nothing has changed in the physics regarding that. It's just things have gotten smaller and faster. And you think about it, we're putting computers now in an industrial cabinet. Drives now, they're computer controlled. They're not analog anymore. And the voltages on these circuit boards are less than three volts, where 20 years ago, it was plus 12, minus 12, and sometimes five. So the voltage levels are smaller. The amount of electromagnetic emissions hasn't changed. So if you put the same electromagnetic emissions in an environment where the voltages are smaller, you got a good chance they'll interfere with that system. So Let's get into how we can prevent this. And there's some very simple things we can do. But let's just review a little bit because I know questions come up and they go like, well, what's the science behind the electromagnetic emissions associated with the drive? And I'll try to describe this. Normally, I do this with uh, a slide presentation and visuals, but let me try to do this by descriptive words. I think you'll you'll understand because... If you're familiar with drives, it's a box, and then it runs a motor, so you have a motor, 
But to get the energy from the drive or the box to the motor, you have to have some cabling. We haven't invented a wireless drive yet (laughs) where we don't need any motor cable. Perhaps we'll get there with really small ones because we do have wireless chargers for our smartphone, but I think it'll be a while before we ever get a 200 horsepower drive energy from the drive to the motor wirelessly. So you got to have a cable. Now, what's interesting about cable, and as you know, the characteristic of a cable when you're uh, designing a system It's the resistance of it, right? You certainly on a 200 horsepower drive, you wouldn't put a 16 gauge wire or a a small gauge wire connecting the drive to the motor because the resistance is too high with that amount of current and it'll overheat. So we think of motor cables with the resistance. Now remember, just a little while back, I told you the output of the drive is a series of rectangular pulses with very rapid rise times. It's that pulse width modulation pattern where you're changing from zero volts to 650 in several hundred nanoseconds. All right. Look at your wire. Look at your cable. Envision your your wiring between a drive and a motor. And now you got to look at capacitance. Capacitance between one conductor and another conductor. Capacitance between a conductor and the conduit cable tray if it's a bundled cable and shielded cable between that conductor and the shield. If you're not familiar with capacitance, that's fine. It's just another electrical component, but it is a electrical component that will allow current to flow when the voltage changes rapidly across it. Okay. So if we have current flow between a conductor and say the conduit, and we have current flow between the conductor and the shield, that means we'll have current flow on the conduit or on the shield or on the cable tray is metal. Some people would say that's your ground system. So what I just described is when we're modulating the output of the drive, we're coupling current into your ground system. Now, it's high-frequency stuff. It is current, and another term we use is common mode current. It's changing at a rate of 250 kilohertz up to a couple megahertz, okay? So don't go out there, take your current amp clamp and try to read this stuff with an amp clamp. It happens so fast, the needle won't move. You need sophisticated test equipment and oscilloscopes to look at it. And by the way, you know what? An electrical motor has a winding in it, which is wire, and there's also capacitance between the motor winding and the motor frame. So every time you got that pulse width modulated voltage at the motor terminal, you're going to couple current through that capacitance into the motor frame, and that's usually connected to ground. All right. So I hope you're still with me on that. And what you heard was Dave just said we had high-frequency current in my ground system of my facility. That is the origin or mechanism in which it could interfere with the electronics. Is this something that is just in its nature going to exist in all electrical systems? Is this only where a customer already will have a drive, or is this something they just need to be aware of when they're installing a drive? This is something they need to be aware of when they install a drive, especially if they know they have very sensitive electronic equipment associated with the application. Let me give you an example. 
So say you have a drive in the cabinet located out by the process, the machine, and you want to send and receive information from that drive from a remotely located controller, say a PLC, and it's in a different part of the building. And you know that PLC or that controller is maybe plugged into an outlet, you know, 120 volt outlet, and you know it's it's got the ground plug, right? All high voltages over 50 volts, you got to have, it's got to be grounded. So you got the ground plug and you know the drive is grounded. And we'll talk about grounding in a little bit. And the drive is also grounded too, but it's grounded near the machine. Between that PLC controller and the drive, you have copper wire, communication wire, or it could be an analog signal. Now, I told you the drive produces this high-frequency current into the ground system, and that actually creates high-frequency ground voltage potential differences between different areas of your factory, of your machine, and where the PLC is grounded. If you had test equipment and a scope and voltage leads that were long enough, you can actually measure this high-frequency voltage potential difference between where the drive is grounded and where that PLC is grounded. Here's what can happen now. That high-frequency voltage potential can couple into the PLC controller, go through its electronics, go out the copper wire that's connected to the drive, go through the drive electronics, through the ground system, and then back to the controller. Some of you may discover or hear something like ground loop. Yes, that is a classic ground loop phenomena. High-frequency voltage potential differences between two electronic pieces of equipment, coupling into those two electronic equipment with the link being the copper wire, could be the Ethernet cable or, or analog cable. Now, this phenomena is physics. Drives do this, high-frequency modulation on the output. It's just the, the all drives do this. And then this high-frequency stuff or current goes through the ground system and this could affect the performance of sensors, electronics, communication networks. A typical phone call, like I said, we get is every time we start to drive, it takes a while for the communication to the drive to, to, to finish, or we even knock off a communication signal or sensors don't work. So I hope you're beginning to see a way to mitigate this, to prevent this from happening. Make it compatible. Like I say, we want a compatible system. So how are we going to make it compatible? You can use this methodology for solving a lot of interference problems. Contain the emissions. Keep it from going out on the ground system. Contain them. Redirect them. Redirect these emissions away from other devices and then attenuate them. Make them smaller. Make the frequencies lower than 200 kilohertz. Make the amplitudes of this ground current much smaller than they are. So if you want to solve a noise-related issue or electromagnetic emission issue or interference issue, find the source of the emissions, contain it within the source, redirect it, and attenuate it. So how are we going to contain these emissions? And I think you've heard these Shielded cable, shielded cable between the drive and the motor. You put the conductors that are emitting this stuff in a can, a tin can, but it's flexible, right? So we got shielded cable. 
So if I wrap those wires in steel, well, then it doesn't become flexible, right? If I wrap these wires in, say, uh, braided shield that's flexible, I just invented shielded cable. So what happens is the emissions now will couple onto the shield. Ah, shielded cable. You got to terminate that shield. You got one end, the drive end, and you got the motor end. We're going to terminate that shield at the drive, ground terminal or cabinet, drive chassis. And we're also going to terminate that shield at the motor frame. Now, here's where in my seminars I do, I see hands go up. I see half of the crowd, their hands go up. Mr. Dahl, Mr. Dahl, I went to college. I went to school. I was an apprentice and my instructor said, don't terminate a shield at both ends, one end only. And I go, you're absolutely right. I was taught the same thing, and I know exactly what you're talking about. But keep in mind, what you were taught was trying to keep emissions going on to the signal wire, right? You had a noise source somewhere out there, and you had a signal wire, and you didn't want the signal to be disturbed. That energy from the noisy source was shielded by the shield on around the signal wire to prevent the signal from being disturbed. Here we have the opposite. The wiring between the drive and the motor is the source for the emissions. Emissions are coming off of those wires. You've got to put a cap on both ends. If you only put a cap on one end, the emissions will come out the other end. If you only put a cap on the other end, meaning terminating the shield at the other end, it's going to escape on the other end, right? It's going to be leaky. You don't want a leaky and noisy motor wire, so you terminate the shield on both ends. And I'm telling you, this actually works. We had a customer where it was a lifting application, and they had an encoder on the motor shaft. And every time they ran the drive, they would lose information from the motor encoder. It's like, well, are you using shielded cable? Yes, we are. I said, is the shield terminated at both ends? The same response. We never terminate the shield at at both ends. And I explain that we're trying to contain the emissions on the emitter of the motor wires, terminate the shield on both ends. They did that, and the encoder worked properly. The science behind this is verified by a lot of field experience. It's containment. What if it's an existing installation and they don't have they don't have the opportunity to pull the uh, pull the cable or replace the cable? Good question. That leads me right into the other methods to mitigate electromagnetic emissions and keep them compatible with other electronics. The other thing is to redirect them. Redirect these emissions away from other electronics. What you can do with that is in our products, our architecture drives, we have built-in EMI RFI filter. These EMI RFI filters are connected to the chassis, to the PE ground that we, we call it. These are capacitive components that take the emissions and they redirect them right to the power supply and they keep them from going spuriously out into your factory ground system. So that's also what you can do. And then the Other thing you can do is add ferrite chokes, common mode chokes on the output of the drive. 
Rockwell has options for ferrite trucks you can put on the output of the drive. You put the motor leads through them, and they attenuate these emissions by up to 60% less amplitude, and they reduce the frequencies from a couple megahertz down to, I've seen, less than 50 kilohertz. So the lower the frequency, the less chances they'll couple into sensitive electronic equipment. And, of course, the lower amplitude of these emissions, the less chance they'll couple into other things. Containment, you shield a cable, redirect them by using the existing filters that are built into our drives or use the optional filter option for our component drives, and then attenuate the emissions by using ferrite cores. That's a lot of great information you just uh, just covered there. And, and all through the uh, discussion, you mentioned ground systems and shields and making sure that it's grounded on both ends. And you even used the word spuriously. Um, <laughs> that's quite cool. So let, let's transition to grounding. Is that just finding a ground strap somewhere or a ground rod stuffed into the physical earth somewhere and tying back to that? Or what, is, what does that mean? Great comments, Neil. You can't talk about electromagnetic emissions without talking about grounding. If I had a, a, a nickel for every time somebody called me up and they had an issue with electromagnetic emissions and grounding was always the term used, I probably could have retired a couple of years earlier here. But So we got to talk about grounding because it's really important. I've had customers take a five-gallon bucket, fill it up with dirt, and then stick a, a rod, metal rod into it and bring it close to the drive cabinet and tie the drive ground to that rod, which was inserted into the five-gallon bucket of dirt. That's not what we're talking about grounding. That is, We don't want to do that. What we want to do is, and this is how I express grounding, is it's really important. And the number one function of grounding and bonding is in the uh, power world is for safety, okay? And if you follow guidelines like local codes, national codes for grounding and bonding, those codes are there for short circuit protection. They're there for safe touch so no one gets electrocuted. And they're there for to prevent fires, to prevent overheating of conductors. If you follow those guidelines for grounding for safety, short circuit safe touch, and fire prevention, you've got a good foundation to prevent electrical interference too. Now, saying that, you shouldn't give up safety, short circuit protection, or fire protection to fix a noise-related issue. You shouldn't remove a safety ground. Even if the interference goes away, you should never remove a safety ground as a solution for a noise-related problem. I've seen this happen. I've seen grounds removed from motors out in the field. Oh, we had a noise-related problem, and I removed the ground wire on the safety ground wire on the motor, and my noise problem went away. Ah, guess what happens? Could be months later, but he goes and rubs the nameplate off the motor while it's running, and he gets tingled. Why is that? Because the, the motor frame will achieve some voltage on it just through stray capacitance because it's not bonded to any, and it's not bonded to the system or safety ground. So safety trumps any electromagnetic interference issue. So I tell people is you look at your panel and if a phase conductor shorts to the panel, how comfortable do you feel touching that panel? 
if you don't feel comfortable touching the panel, then you need to fix that grounding and bonding. So what does that mean? That means you should have a conductor path, and it usually is a conductor. It's usually a wire or a cable or something that goes all the way from the power transformer all the way through the switchgear, through uh, local branch circuit breakers, right up to the drive panel. So that if a phase conductor shorts to the panel, it finds its path back to the source. It's usually a transformer, could be a generator, but it causes enough current on a solidly grounded distribution system to open up fuses and circuit breakers and release the energy off that panel so no one gets hurt if they touch the electrified panel. Okay. Now let's take it one step further though. We're going to improve a system grounding structure by improving the bonding of how we bond these ground conductors to a panel and how do we bond individual components in a panel. We're going to improve that bonding practice to minimize these high frequency voltage potentials that could occur across it. So for safety and short circuit, you know, you can drill and tap a hole and you can use round wires for short circuit and safe touch protection. But you don't want to use that same practice for high frequency. You don't want to bond a wire to a painted panel, right? Because high frequency needs surface area to let that high frequency and minimizes those, minimize those impedances. So if you're going to bond ground conductors to a panel, you want to make sure it's on an unpainted surface. As long as we're talking about that, painted panels are still pretty popular, right? But we should be beginning to transform into the use of galvanized back panels. We're evolving into industrial electronics where the speeds of communications are increasing dramatically and the signal levels of those communications are decreasing dramatically. We're going from one or two volt signals down to millivolts, and it might be less than that in the future. So having these high-frequency voltage potential differences across the panel could be the difference between something working and not something not working. I'm discouraging the use of painted back panels, but I'm saying we should begin transferring our panel technology to, to galvanized back panels. If you look at the back of a architecture drive, you'll notice that it's a piece of sheet metal back there. And I told you architectural drives have EMI RFI filters, high-frequency stuff like surface area. Why don't we mount that architecture drive right to a galvanized panel and utilize the filtering that's in there? It's much better than a round ground wire. And speaking of round ground wires and bonding a panel, improve the mitigation of interference, let's begin using braided ground straps instead of round wires that bond panels to cabinets and cabinet doors to the cabinet and back panel. Now think of it. What do you put on a cabinet door these days? You put on a HMI. What are they? Those are computers. If it's a Rockwell product, it's a Windows-based computer. It's mounted to a door that's on hinges, <laughs> right? That door isn't bonded to the rest of the back panel of that the PLC is bonded to or the, or the drive is bonded to that it's communicating to. So I have experience where 
hey, every time the drive runs, my HMI screen is interfered with. We improve the bonding from the panel at the HMI, the door, to the back panel where the PLC or the drive is, and the symptoms of interference with the HMI went away using connections that are braided. Now, a leading expert in this technology of panel layout and components used is Panduit, a compass partner of Rockwell Automation. They have some really good technical guidelines on how to lay out and, and properly bond and ground panels and what components to use. And of course, they have the components to do it. They have the infrastructure to do it. I don't know if a lot of people know it, but a major business part of Panduit is data centers. And if you're familiar with a data center, those are centers that have all these computer servers that store and send out data for large corporations. These could be payrolls. These could be investments. And this information is accessed instantaneously and it has to be without errors. So you can imagine you can't have one of these servers go down and you can't have mistakes or interference with these servers. And Panduit lays the infrastructure out for these data centers and, and the servers for proper grounding and bonding. So we are very fortunate to partner with Panduit and their technology that they use for their data centers to leverage into how to make the same infrastructure for industrial automation cabinets. It's incredible. So I encourage you, go to Panduit. They've got a, a lot of literature and technical literature out there. But to break it down very simply, they recommend galvanized back panels. Now, let's begin using more galvanized back panels. You bond the equipment panels, doors with braided ground straps and then bond everything together using fasteners that have a lot of surface area to them. So compatibility, how we can prevent electromagnetic interference, containment, redirect it and attenuate it, and the improper grounding and bonding for safety, short circuit protection and reduce fire hazards, but just enhance it by improving the bonding of that. Well, that's great stuff. And I really like the the mention of the data center because I think a lot of people can uh, understand without knowing what all happens in a data center, but how critical uptime is for a data center. And yet here we are discussing criticality of uptime and the disruption that these same issues can cause on our, our factory floors and our production centers and industrial applications across the globe. Well, as we're transitioning from grounding to drive output, what is a best practice, Dave, with that ground from the motor back to the drive? Oh, good question. The function of the bonding or the grounding of the motor back to the drive is for sh short circuit protection and safe touch. I can't stress that much more than that, right? You don't want to go out by the motor, and I've done this before. I've wiped off the data nameplate, and I felt tingles, and I discovered that the bonding between the drive and the motor was compromised, right? And it doesn't feel very good. So, of course, you have the phase conductors that bring energy to the motor, but you need a ground conductor. You call it a ground conductor that bonds the motor frame, unpainted surface of the motor frame back to an unpainted surface of the drive frame. So in the event that 
the stator winding in the motor shorts to the motor frame, it has a path back to the drive and it has a chance to detect a ground fault. Okay. And then with the shield, right? If you use a shielded cable because you want to prevent electromagnetic interference, the shield should also be bonded to the motor frame and back to the drive frame to contain those emissions. You mentioned motor compatibility right at the start of this. And obviously, we just need to worry about amperage and voltage, right? Well, that's the number one or thing. Not. You should, that's, hey, Jim, that's the number one thing about compatibility with a drive and the motor is we should make sure the motor is sized properly for the application, right? The leading cause of failures of motors, it's, I think it's 75% of all motor failures is due to overheating. And the overheating is caused by the motor is not sized properly for the, uh, for the load. And I'm sure our audience does due diligence to make sure that that motor is sized properly for the application, and then the drive is sized properly for the motor application. There's another thing you should be aware of regarding motor and drive compatibility. There's this thing called reflective wave voltages. What is that? What I've never heard of that. Maybe you have. You know, you can go to your web browser search engine and just type in reflective wave and you can get some more background on this, but let me try to explain it now. So I told you the output of a drive is a series of rectangular pulses, right? With very rapid rise time on a 480 volt drive, it goes from zero to plus 650 and zero to minus 650 because it wants to create kind of like a sinusoidal voltage to give you the variable voltage at the variable motor. Now, at the drive, they're very crisp rectangular wave shapes. They rise, and then they level off at that DC bus voltage, and then they drop down to zero. But what about at the motor? Well, if you were to take a measurement at the motor, you might find something very interesting. What you might see is the voltage actually rises and it'll overshoot and have a little transient that overshoots that, I said 650 for a 480 volt drive. It'll overshoot that 650 and it could go to, go up to, I don't know, 1300, two times that 650 for just a very short amount of time. You know, and I'm talking maybe a microsecond at the most, right? So it'll overshoot it and it'll come down and there'll be a little bit of ringing and it'll level off at that 650 is called reflective wave. And some of you might have experience through your education transmission line theory, where if you've got these square wave pulses going down a transmission line from a source and at the load, you might see these overshoots, right? The phenomena, I'm not going to try to explain it in this episode. My advice is if you're curious about it, there's been enough research done about this with motor reflective wave there's so many electrical IEEE papers on it. Rockwell Automation has got maybe a half a dozen or more electrical IEEE papers on this subject. So you can get more background. So let me just review what I just said. At the drive, you got these nice crisp rectangular pulses, 0 to 650 on a 480 volt drive. At the motor, you have these voltage transients that are over 1,000 volts, over 1,300 volts on a 480-volt drive. My question 
in this episode is will my motor survive these voltage transients? A motor running across the line normally will never see these transients. The peak that they'll see is at 650 because that's the peak of a 480 volt sinusoidal wave shape. Okay. But a motor on a drive, you know, it's just the physics of how drives work. They have these output IGBTs, these output switches, they switch very rapid at these voltages. You will see these voltage transients at the motor. And then the question comes up again is, will my motor survive those voltages? Will it be compatible with the drive? The answer is yes, if you select a motor that's been designed, manufactured, and has a material that can survive these voltage transients. Now, in North America, they call these motors built to NEMA MG1 Part 31. In Part 31, there's a, a, a paragraph or two that describe to a motor manufacturer on motors manufactured to this NEMA standard shall survive voltages with a rise time of 100 nanoseconds and for a 480 volt system, uh, 1,488 volts, which would be greater than the typical voltage you see on a 480 volt drive. So you pick a motor that's compatible is what I'm saying. You go to your motor manufacturer and say, I want to apply your motor to a VFD. And I know, because I listened to this, this podcast, is I, I know that a VFD can produce voltage transients at the motor. So I want to make sure this motor will survive, will be compatible. The motor manufacturer would say, well, yeah, we manufacture to NEMA MG1 Part 31, which states it, it has been manufactured to withstand these voltages. All right. The other thing is we do a lot of retrofits. We use existing motors and these motors might be 30 years old and you want to continue to use them. Well, you know, if it's a motor that's over 30 years old, it probably has never been exposed to an adjustable speed drive, a variable frequency drive, and these voltage transients. So there's a risk of applying older motors to latest drives today. So you will need something between the drive and the motor to reduce those voltage transients or eliminate them. And there's a lot of devices available. Rockwell has a device we call the Terminator. It can install it right at the motor terminals. And what it does is it practically eliminates those voltage transients at the motor terminal. So instead of getting 1300 volts peak, you probably get, well, say for a 40 volt drive, it's 650 volt DC bus. You might get maybe 700, 720 volts, but certainly a lot less than that 1300 volts. We have a lot of Encompass partners that provide DVD-T filters, just load reactors, and sine wave filters. DVD-T filter could be as simple as a reactor. Could be a reactor with a resistor. Could be a reactor with some resistors and capacitance. There's a plenty of guidelines and, and material out there to provide you solutions to this, what we call, reflective wave phenomena which would make your motor compatible with the drive. The solution will depend on uh, cable length, right? Yes, the solution depends upon the cable length. In the beginning of this episode, we were emphasizing 
documentation. And I can't emphasize that the most is Rockwell's got this drives IN001 manual and we have user's manuals. And a lot of what I've been talking about is pulled right out of these documentations. So uh, I encourage you after the listening to this uh, episode is to grab Rockwell's user's manuals and these drives IN001 manual. In the drives IN001 manual, Appendix A, we give you guidelines. So the question you'll have is, I've got an installation and I'm going to use a non-inverter duty rated motor manufactured to MG1 part 31. Will my motor survive? And a function of that is cable length distance and what you think that motor voltage rating of that motor is. I got to tell you, back in the middle 90s, Rockwall evaluated hundreds of motors from different manufacturers to determine what voltage would cause damage to those particular motors. We took inexpensive motors, motors that we would describe has no insulation in the windings at all. We took motors that were had insulation, phase paper, slot paper in it, but they were not inverter duty rated motors. They weren't manufactured to MG1 part 31. And we raised the terminal voltage to the motor until we start seeing, technically until we start seeing partial discharge or corona inside the motor, which means there's something going on, something breaking down in the insulation. And then we tested, of course, MG1 part 31 motors. And what we did is we give you a guideline in DRIES IN001 manual that you can use to evaluate the motor. You could put it on a drive. Like, for example, I'm going to use an existing motor. It's not the most less expensive motor. I've talked to the motor manufacturer. and They told me it's got slot paper in it and it's got paper in the interns, but it wasn't manufactured to NEMA 1 MG1 per 31. So we would call that in the 480-volt world a 1,200-volt motor. Then you can go to the table and go, well, the motor's going to be 200 feet away from the drive. So what you can do is we have sections in that appendix, in appendix A, where you select the drive you're going to use, and you determine what the motor terminal voltage is that you'll begin to have breakdown. And then you'll go down the column, and it'll tell you, well, if you don't use anything between the drive and the motor, you can go maybe 90 feet. Oh, well, my application is 200 feet. So then you have to go to the next column, which gives you a solution. The next column might say, hey, a reactor. So you go, okay, what if I add an output reactor? So you go output reactor, 1,200 volt, and you go down to the horsepower. And it goes, hey, it says you can go 350 feet. So that table will tell you to use that motor, all you need to do is add an output reactor. Then you just call up your distributor and you say, hey, I need a, an output reactor for 7.5 horsepower drive. The voltage will be reduced below that 1,200 volt, much less than that and the motor will survive. We actually have software tools that you can predict what the voltage will be at your motor terminal. Well, I think we know this topic is definitely a, a big one and we can go in a lot of different directions. So this will take place over multiple episodes here as we, we break this up and break it down. Dave, thank you for today. We're gonna just wrap up here for this episode and then we will pick up very quickly as we start our next episode so just want to say thank you dave 
as we close this one out and we'll look forward to catching up with you soon here to all of our listeners thank you very much again there should be a link to the drives installation manual for your reading pleasure but certainly for your reference as you consider additions troubleshooting or installations to your electrical system with vfds Music